ultimately, why do we preach the gospel the way we do? And certainly in a church like this, I'm going to say for right now, I'm pretty confident that everybody here is a believer. Everybody's already trusted Jesus as their Savior. So why would I talk about that message again? Well, partly the things we just sang about, you know, that we enjoy that and we are fed on it. But there's another reason, uh, and that's that if we get mm, complacent about the cross to where we don't see that as central in the message that we're bringing with our lives, then we're no longer preaching the gospel with our lives. We're telling people to be good, and that's not the same thing. Let's open up in prayer, please. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and your blessing and your guidance as we approach your word, that we recognize that we, we're lacking. We don't understand everything. We don't remember everything. We're, we're so easily drawn astray and so easily distracted from the, the central message of the Bible and, and our job before you, what we've been assigned to do. We ask that you would open our eyes again to your word, open our hearts, illuminate our minds, and enlighten our hearts so we can understand in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to open by, I hadn't planned to do it this way, but I'm going to open by reading a passage in Galatians chapter 1. If you turn there, you can read it in whatever, whatever translation or version of the Bible, whatever Bible you've got. I'll read it in King James. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Uh, please remember the entire book of Galatians, the whole context of the book of Galatians, is answering the then current uh, argument that people were bringing that, that really Jesus' blood was not enough to save you. You need to be keeping the Mosaic Law. That was what was happening right then, real hard. Uh, the Jews from Thessalonica, from, uh, yeah, from Thessalonica, I believe, had followed him city by city as he was preaching in the different towns. And as he was preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith plus nothing, they were coming along right behind him and saying, ah, no, 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 you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, otherwise God's going to kick you out. So that's what the context of the book of Galatians is. Uh, but here in verse, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says, I'm amazed, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who called you into the grace of Christ, grace of Christ, into another gospel, which is not another, but there'd be some that trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Wow, that's pretty heavy talk coming from a godly man. Verse 9 says, As we've said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Wow. Okay, so what does it mean when it says another gospel? Well, in this particular case, they're preaching legalism. That's what was going on in the book of Galatians. You can, you can read through it. Uh, we've preached through it before here. Uh, if anybody wants to talk about that in specific, we can talk about that privately, but uh, or at least at another time, it doesn't have to be private. But what I'd like to talk about today, and this is the title, Chuck, for you, is circumventing the cross, going around, trying to miss the cross. <clears throat> I had read that in an old novel some time ago, 
probably a lot of you have read it. It was almost a classic, quite old. In fact, the name of it was Christie. Um, it was set in the setting of 1912 in the Appalachian Mountains in the United States, and a young woman was sent as a medical assistant to this tiny Appalachian community, uh, and she was mentored by a Quaker missionary who was there before her. And that woman had tirelessly worked to gain the confidence of the people and to bring the love of God into their homes and their hearts. That all sounds great, doesn't it? I don't have any problem with that. The two women and various others in the story demonstrate the grace and love of God in their own lives, and gradually people are won over. Hearts are softened. People desire to learn literacy. They start reading their Bibles. God's character miraculously begins to show up in people's life, and that all sounds great too, doesn't it? It really does, except that after I'd finished the book and got thinking about it, I realized there was something missing. Not once was there a mention of the person of Christ. Not once was there a mention of the issue of sin, what stands between us and God in the first place. And no mention of the cross at all. No mention of the need for a blood sacrifice for sin. It was completely, completely left out. In fact, they even had a vision of heaven. And they didn't have Jesus. They had a bunch of people wandering around, happy people playing with babies. Yeah? What about this Lamb of God who's on the throne. What about him as the central light, the source of light in heaven? Well, he's completely left out. So what were they really doing there? They were preaching another gospel. They were preaching a social gospel. I'm not saying the Quaker church at large is. I'm saying that in the story, that's what was being done. And it was just a fiction novel. But it was very, very well received. Everybody just thought it was wonderful. And I thought it was wonderful. I enjoyed the book until I got thinking about it and realized how specifically the central figure of the gospel was completely left out. All right? So the issue was a bloodless sacrifice of sin, for sin. Okay? <clears throat> they were just going to be good. Do you remember the first bloodless sacrifice for sin? How far back do we got to go? Actually, Genesis chapter 4. You see, because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and God cursed the ground for the sake of the people, and he cursed the serpent, and so forth, part of the curse on the serpent involved a promise to the people of a coming Savior, the seed of woman. He said the seed of woman would crush the serpent's head. And Adam heard that part, the promise part of the curse for sin, and believed in that. And he named his wife Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, because she was the mother of all the living. She re he realized that life was coming back to them through this seed of woman. He didn't know that it went thousands of years down the line, the seed of woman. By the way, who's the only person in all of human history that can only be called the seed of woman who had no human father? See. Jesus was that promised seed of the woman. They didn't know that. In fact, they thought their firstborn, uh, Cain, might have been him. And he wasn't, not by a long shot. Anyway, what did God do in response to uh, Adam's statement of faith? It says that God clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of animals. There was a blood sacrifice for sin. See, they covered their own sin with their own works, their own works with their own hands. Good works. They covered them with 
pieces stitched together. And I don't know why fig leaves. Fig leaves are full of holes to begin with. But that's what it says. So that's what they chose. They're good tough leaves. I guess you could sew them together and they'd stay sewed for a while. But when God showed up, it says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cold of the day. And what did they do? They said, oh, Lord, let's go show our new clothes. What they did? They ran and hid. And when he asked them why, they said, because our leaves were out of fashion. We wanted to, no, no. What did it say? Because we were naked. When God stepped into the picture, their own works did nothing to cover their sins. They weren't just not good enough. They did nothing to cover their sins. And that's true in our lives. Our own works will work on a horizontal basis. I can convince Lois that I'm a good man. God knows better. See? On a, on a vertical relationship, when God steps into the picture, my good works do nothing to convince God of anything. He knows my heart. Right, so that's what the issue was in the garden. Their progeny, Cain and Abel, we know the story, how Cain murdered Abel, but why? Why did he? You remember that? In Genesis chapter 4, Abel brought a blood sacrifice for sin because he had seen the example that God laid down in Genesis chapter 3. He brought that blood sacrifice, and God received it. Cain thought, well, he's bringing what he does for a living. He raised sheep. I raised vegetables. So I don't know what he brought. Broccoli, I don't know what he brought. It might have been something really great. If he didn't brought broccoli, I could understand why God didn't want that. huh? No, actually, I like broccoli. Uh, I do now. I didn't when I was a kid. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was... Your vegetable offering is fine as a worship offering, but until you get the sin issue out of the way, you're not eligible to worship. You can't come to the throne of grace unless your sins be dealt with at the cross. And that's what I had the problem with in that book, is that they neglected the cross. They thought they could come to God with clean lives because they quit doing bad things. Cain brought an offering that was rejected, and he was angry. God responded very gently. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 4, God reasoned with Cain and says, If you do, if you do right, I'll receive you too. I, I haven't got anything to do with you. I mean, I haven't got any problem with you. There was nothing personal about it. There was no blood sacrifice for sin, and God would not receive his worship before the sin was dealt with. Cain was angry about it and ultimately went and killed Abel. I always think of it as, you want blood? I'll give you blood. I don't know that that was his... They, they may have had a big argument. I don't know. All I know is that Cain killed Abel. Right? So that's the first example we have of a self-made religion. I've had many people, when I tried to share the Lord with them, they say, I have my own religion, thank you. I think, really? Did you make it up? Or did somebody else make it up? What are we talking about here? You know, they may just mean they don't want to hear it from me because... They go to church someplace and they're afraid I'm preaching another gospel. Okay, if that's it, then that's fine. If you're getting fed on God's Word, I really have no objection. I, don't, I honestly don't care where you go to church if you're getting fed on God's Word. That's not the issue. The issue was that they had a bloodless sacrifice for sin. not God's equals. Cain wanted to approach God as an equal. Cain wanted to bring him a present. We're not equals. For one thing, he's the creator or the created beings. For another thing, we're sinners. And that's the part that Cain didn't want to admit to himself, that he needed a savior. 
when Jesus was here on earth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It didn't just mean by imitating him. The holiness of God has to be satisfied before we're eligible for worship, before we can enter into a relationship with God. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, we could not approach God even through his agency. Do you remember when last week when we talked about we approach the throne of grace through the human living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, which, what happened? Well, his flesh was torn at the cross, the spear, the, the nails, the, the scourges, the whips, the, the thorns. No, no bones were broken, that's not the point. His skin was broken, his flesh was torn, his heart was broken, and they put a spear through him. Yeah, his body was broken at the cross. And that's why when we had communion, we celebrated it that way. But apart from that, if he had not gone to the cross, the way was not open, the veil would not be torn. We'd still be waiting outside. So it's absolutely necessary that we preach the gospel of the cross, not a gospel of good works or a gospel of uh, let's just everybody love one another. Uh, I mean, I'd like to love one another too. But unless we start at the cross, we haven't gotten a way to do it. I can't change. I'd be still a cranky old sinner that hates everybody. I'm pretty antisocial. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life, no man comes unto the Father but by me, he was specifically meaning through him, by means of the veil, walking through his torn flesh to the seat of God, to the throne of God. So why is it that we reject the cross as, as a race, the human race? Why do we reject the cross? Now today, people reject the cross for a variety of reasons. Uh, it can all be traced down to two fundamental reasons. They either consider it offensive or they consider it foolishness. That's interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 17 through 21, we see that's how the old time people saw it too. That the Jews rejected it because it offended them and the Gentiles rejected it because they thought it was foolishness. Hmm. Interesting, because that's exactly what we run into today too. <coughs> They don't consider the possibility that God's wisdom is so far beyond them, far beyond their own wisdom, that it seems to be foolishness simply because they can't understand it, and they can't begin to understand it. I can't begin to understand it. Think about this. Why is it okay in God's economy for someone else to die for my sins? And under our laws, if someone else is punished for something you did, it's considered a miscarriage of justice. But under God's law, it is possible for someone to voluntarily step in and take my punishment for my sin and to declare me righteous on the basis of his shed blood of the cross. Do I understand that? No, but I have to faithfully teach it because that's the mystery of the gospel. So I either think it's offensive because they use the God's I'm a sinner. Um, yeah. Yep, he does. Sacrifice? Come on, what kind of savage would require that? That's that's sure pagan paganry. You know, why would they have a blood sacrifice? That's something that was done away with in the dark ages. No. So they find that offensive for either of those reasons. Either that there is a blood sacrifice at the cross required, or 
that God would consider them offensive, or an offender, a sinner. Ann and I have a friend that angrily said, I am not a bad person. Well, compared to other humans, no. But how about compared to Jesus? See, it depends on who you compare yourself to. I always thought I wasn't short until Isaac Flemmer came around. You know, he could lean his elbow on top of my head. It depends on who you compare yourself to. They may think it's foolishness for a host of reasons. They may think it's an idiotic story. What kind of a God would do anything like that? I've had people say all kinds of things, debunking the Bible because they think it's foolish. They don't understand it, they don't know anything about it, but they think it's foolishness. I had a fellow tell me, the Bible is just full of contradictions. I said, really? Name one. He stood there and stared at me. He couldn't. He couldn't name a single one. Why? Because he's just parroting what he's heard. The Bible's full of contradictions. Really? Show me one. Actually, as a student of the Word, I can show you some. But when you go back to the original languages, they disappear. Because it turns out it was a translation error. No problem. Okay. But he used that as a tool by which to reject God's Word. A friend of mine published in a newspaper that he had no reason to take seriously the as a quote of a ragged band of goat herds from 3,000 years ago. Huh, how many misconceptions are there in that? These are some of the first people in the world that were literate. These are some of the first people in the world that had a written code of ethics or and it was straight from God. They had a, a written word of God, not just a tradition handed down from their fathers. It was one of the first monotheistic religions in the world. The rest were all polytheistic, some of them pantheistic. But that's right, that's what he thinks. They're a primitive bunch of good herds from 3,000 years ago. <coughs> so it's interesting to me to see that those two issues are still the grounds for rejecting the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Not that the Jew is a stumbling block, it means an offense. And the Greeks, foolishness. They went on to say that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now in another passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is nothing else in the scripture that's defined as the power of God to save those that believe. Nothing. Your good work can't do it. Your creed can't do it. What church you go to can't do it. Okay. He says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, is the power of God to save those who believe. If we leave that out, we have left out the power of God to save those who believe. Period. We can't leave that out. It's saying an exclusive truth there in Romans 1.16. It's not just saying why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. By the way, think about this. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Is there a reason why you don't feel comfortable sharing it with other people? Because I feel the same way as you do. I'm afraid of causing offense. I'm afraid of being thought foolish. I'm afraid of rejection. Really? Really? Jesus died to give them this opportunity. You're not even willing to risk some rejection? Okay. When we stated that, that it was the power of God into salvation, we're stating an exclusive truth. There's no other truth named in Scripture 
that has the power to save people. There's no other way given by which we may approach God. It's just Jesus. Okay. And yet, as a human race, we continue to reject God's only plan of salvation. There is no plan B. This is it. If you reject plan A, there is no plan B. If you're not specifically preaching the cross, you're not telling people how to be saved. If you're not specifically dependent upon the cross, you're not saved. Last week in Romans 3.25, it says that our faith is specifically to be in the blood of Jesus. We're not just having faith that Jesus is a good teacher, or he's a prophet, or he's a good man, or just an emissary from God. We're having faith specifically that his blood at the cross was enough to pay for my sins, start to finish. That's what the issue is. So what about the religions or preachers that ignore the cross? What are they doing? Well, a religion or a preacher circumvents the cross, goes around it, because it's uncomfortable. Regardless of how nicely they teach the rest of the scripture, what do we have to conclude? Surely such nice people must have a right standing with God, mustn't they? No, not necessarily. There's people that you know as well as I do, I'm not going to name names because I don't watch them, but there's televangelists that say lots and lots of nice things, make everybody feel good, and ignore the cross of Jesus. If I follow their teaching, will I have a right standing with God? All those nice, pious, gentle, pleasant people can't be wrong, can they? This is why we read Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Because they're not only wrong, God says they're under a curse. Because they're inviting people to stay away from Jesus. They're saying, all you got to do is be good. God will God love you up. Live like this. God will love you. Sorry. That's not true. What about sin? How do you deal with sin? Well, there's three ways that human religions deal with sin. One is to deny it completely. Say there's no such thing as sin. That's just what your society has taught you. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad. There are very many religions that teach that because everybody knows inherently they're born with the inner and inborn knowledge that there's such a thing as right and wrong, especially when it happens to them. Okay. But there are religions that teach that. Taoism is one for sure that teaches there's no such thing as sin. Okay. Uh, it's just what you think. There are those that admit there's such a thing as sin, they admit there's such a thing as right and wrong, but they say, God is so loving and so kind, it's so good, it just doesn't matter. He's going to love us all anyway. We're all children of God. By the way, Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Really? John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil, and his works will you do. So apparently we're not all children of God. So they deny that it ultimately matters. They say God's too loving and kind. I've heard people say God's not going to send anybody to hell. A loving God would not send his child to burn forever for something so minor as sin. That's not the issue. The issue is his righteousness and his holiness. The third way is that people realize that it exists and that it does matter to God that God hates sin, they admit that far, they go that far with what the scripture says, but then say, you have to do lots and lots of good things to overbalance all the bad things you've already done, or that you continue to do. And if you have enough good things to overbalance all the bad things, then God will accept you. How are you going to know when you're done? 
You've done a good enough job that you're accepted before God? You can't. There's no way that you can ever have peace under that sort of religion. By the way, most religions fall into that group. Give enough money, do enough penance, do enough something, you know, say the same prayer over and over enough times. Uh, In fact, there's uh, a particular arm of Buddhism in Tibet where they have a wheel you spin like a kid's top you put your prayer on the inside of that and apparently God reads it every time you spin it because they're holding this thing thinking they're repeating these prayers before God really and that's earning favor with God they're standing whirling this little thing around and around and around and then you have the society that think it was a kid's toy no they're deadly serious about it they're trying to earn salvation by spinning this prayer wheel <coughs> Any of those three will result in the eternal loss of the person that's following those those ways. Why? Because they leave out the cross. Because they leave out the only way that God has ever given to deal with sin. See, the fourth way is to admit that sin exists, admit that God hates sin, and admit that there's nothing I can do about the sin I've already committed. I can't undo it. I can't unbreak the law. I can't unbreak a window, for goodness sake, let alone God's holy law. I can't fix it. If Jesus didn't go to the cross and die in my place, I have no, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, remedy for sin. I have no way to undo the things that I've already done or the things that I continue to do, my continual failing before God. I have nothing I can do to fix it. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, and if that's not the centrality of my faith, then I have nothing to offer him at all. It matters who you trust and what you believe. They say, well, I've got faith there. My faith is just as sincere as yours. Yeah, but, you know, if I, in sincere faith, walk out on a bridge that is already condemned and is about to fall down any moment, believing that bridge has stood for hundreds of years, it'll hold me. But right then is when it's going to fall. I'm going to die. Okay? I sat in a, I don't know what you call them, those plastic injection molded chairs they got for out in the yard nowadays that if you leave them in the sun long enough they get brittle I sat in one of those one day and the back leg broke off and it dumped me you know what I had faith in the wrong thing it cut me too because that plastic's sharp when it breaks and I ran into the broken stuff of the leg as I went down okay my faith was in the wrong thing I noticed this morning not one of you checked the fuse real careful before you sat down to make sure they'd hold you why? Because you had faith that they'd hold you. They'd see, you'd seen that they held you before, and you could see their very solid construction. You didn't have any problem with that. See, you put your faith in something, as it turned out, it was okay to put your faith in for holding you up. But for your eternal security, for your salvation before God, if you put your faith in something that has no power to save, then you are eternally lost. You see? So it does matter. It matters where you put your faith. And truth is not dependent on what people believe. I had a young man sneer at me and say, well, if that makes you feel good, that's fine. But I said, well, it didn't really matter whether it makes me feel good or not. It's either true or it's not. My believing it doesn't make it true. And your not believing it does not make it not true. It's either true or false on its own merit. It'll either stand up to the test of time or it won't based on what it is. It's either true or false. That's it. There's no in-between. 
So either God is holy or he's not. Either he created all things or he didn't. Either man is a sinner or he's not. <laughs> I don't know how you can look at the news today and not think, man, we got problems. We're a messed up human race. I don't see how anybody could ever read the news even one day in today's society and not see that right out on front page. Of course, we're all told it's somebody else's fault. <clears throat> but the first thing is either sin requires a blood sacrifice for forgiveness or it doesn't. Now, doesn't that sound primitive and gory? Surely we progress beyond such savagery. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that argument sound familiar though? What do you remember from Genesis chapter 3 when the woman says, we're not to eat this or touch it. She was wrong about that part, but she said, we're not to eat this or we'll die. And the serpent said, you shall not surely die. See, that's the voice we hear today. God's not going to punish you that way for sin. See, that's too gory. That's too primitive. That's not like a loving God. It doesn't matter what I think about it. What matters is what God says and whether it's true or not. If it is true, then it's true no matter how I feel. And if it isn't true, then it's true, it isn't true no matter how I feel. There's no middle ground. These are all black and white issues. Truth does not depend upon public opinion. There was a time, believe it or not, when virtually everyone in the world was dead sure that the sun came up in the morning and went down at night. I'm pointing the wrong direction. I guess it comes over there and goes down that way. But... Uh, because that's what it looks like. That's what my eyes tell me. Is that sure it'll still come up in the morning? Yeah, but it doesn't, does it? We know that it's spinning on its axis, and we're seeing the sun in the east every morning. But the sun, well, if it's us, it's not going around us. We're going around it. I see in Copernicus's day, he was the only one that had figured it out and could prove scientifically that the Earth was traveling around the sun, not the other way around and nobody else believed it. Well, there was a case where everybody was wrong. And when Galileo said this, the earth was spinning on its axis and moving in space, the church, the Catholic church, forced him to recant to say publicly that he was wrong. History says he whispered under his breath, it's still turning. But he had to publicly recant, or they were going to kill him. Who was right? He was. Everybody was wrong, see. It, public, public opinion doesn't determine truth, okay? God addresses each of the questions that we've talked about, His holiness and so forth, in the Bible. He clearly states numerous times that He is holy and He's righteous. He, he defines righteousness. He defines holiness. And he can't abide sin. He gives a fairly detailed account of the, cre of the creation with many references to that historical fact, all showing that he is the creator and that he has full authority over his creation. He gives a detailed account of how man fell into sin and many references to that historical fact, all agreeing that man is a fallen creature and that apart from God's grace, he's lost. And he demonstrated the blood sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3, he accepted a blood sacrifice in Genesis chapter 4, rejected a non-blood sacrifice, prophesied a blood sacrifice all through the Old Testament, demonstrating a specific blood sacrifice at the Passover, 
Come back to the Passover again. I've got this basin of blood we caught from cutting this poor little lamb's throat. Take a bundle of hyssop, this weed that goes there, and dip it in the blood, and we smack it on the lintel and the two doorposts. Why just that? Before the cross, they were huddled under the blood of that same cross that you and I are huddled under. 1,300 years before it was invented by the Romans, by, before cru crucifixion was invented by the Romans, they were under the blood of that cross. That's what they were putting their faith in, looking forward. Finally, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He declared that one specific blood sacrifice to be the blood sacrifice that has the capacity to take away sin and nothing else. Right? So either those things are true or they're not. And in First John chapter 2, verse 2, we see that that blood sacrifice was the only thing defined as what could satisfy the righteousness of God. God. First John 2, 2 says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he personally is the propitiation, that's the King James word for the satisfying sacrifice, the sacrifice that settles a legal issue. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's what the cross accomplished, according to God. And that was the final word on it. I mean, that, that, he, that it actually satisfied it. There was nothing for God to hold against us as sinners anymore if we place our faith in that blood of the cross. That's how serious it is. By the way, this is in my notes, so you guys get it and nobody else does. If you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, so what happened really in Genesis chapter 4? That lamb was predicting Jesus' crucifixion. But it doesn't, that wasn't before the foundation of the world. That was after the foundation of the world. Jesus took that place in God's economy before God created the world. He knew Jesus was going to the cross. He made the provision before we were created. Think about that one. Okay. Now you can believe whatever you want to about these things. Only you can choose what you're going to believe. But if you reject those truths, no one can take the blame either. You're fully responsible for your own choices. Assuming that you have chosen the blood of God and that you place your trust, your personal trust, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as full payment for your own sins, then you become a child of God by new birth. You're born again, whether you know it or not. You're accountable to Him personally, whether you know it or not. And he has assigned you the job of being his ambassador to the lost world, whether you know it or not. <clears throat> then there's two questions that still remain. You've been given a message to deliver. The question is, do you know what the message is well enough that you can deliver it clearly? And are you willing to deliver it? Those are the two questions. And those are both yes or no issues, too. We recognize that even if we know what the message is and we're willing to deliver, we recognize there's room for growth, that some of us stumble a lot as we're trying to deliver that message, but we're at least willing and we're going to try. And God is pleased with those attempts. But we're willing to grow, too. So what is the gospel? 
we're not sure what the message is. We need to know. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, please. 1 Corinthians, right after Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to take a moment and blow my nose. Allergies are still getting me.
his death and his burial and resurrection, if those three points, any of them are left out, we're not preaching the gospel anymore. Okay. The whole message of the salvation, of salvation is wrapped up in the preaching of the cross. When people claim to be preaching the gospel, but they're circumventing the cross, they're not preaching the gospel at all. They're preaching what God says is another gospel, and they're inviting people to avoid eternal life. That's why they're a curse. And I've had guys tell me, I'm going to really give them the gospel. And I sat down and listened very, very carefully, and they did not mention the gospel. All they told them was these people ought to go to church. That's not the gospel. It's not even part of the gospel. Sure, I'd like to have you here, but that's not the gospel, folks. The gospel of Christ is the story of the cross. Now, I'm not going to go there right now because we're running out of time, but in the book of, of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul go to Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he was faithfully preaching the cross in the synagogues and in the marketplace, but then they invited him to speak publicly at Mark, Mars Hill. We can read this slick, very well produced sermon that Paul delivered on Mars Hill and has been looked up to as a fine example of preaching ever since. I've known guys that brag that they preached that sermon on Mars Hill so they memorized it or they read it going to where Paul stood and they read it over again. Well, you know what? It was just as effective when Paul read it or said it as when they read it. It wasn't effective. There was no church started in Athens as a result of that sermon. It didn't work. Being slick doesn't help. They said some of them mocked. Some of them said, yeah, well, I'll be again sometime. And he left town immediately. All the other towns, he preached the gospel. There was a church started there. And within weeks, there was a functioning body of believers. And when he left, he left behind a functioning church. The Philippi was only there for a few weeks. Thessalonica, I think he was only there for three weeks. In Athens, he was there, sounds like one day, maybe two days. He left immediately. The next place he went was Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, When I came to you, and I was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. Really? Why? Because of what he just did in Athens. He had obscured the cross by his slick talk. My opinion, it doesn't say that, but you can see what he did, what he said, and what the results were, and then see what he said about it at his next stop in Corinth. So when he came to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he says, I, I was sent to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect. If I try to get my own smart thinking in there to add to the story, it will make the cross ineffectual. Not that there's anything wrong with the cross, it's just that I'll obscure it. People won't be listening to that part anymore. <clears throat> we obscure the gospel and meddle with the truth and add our arguments and our persuasions. And Paul, after that, delivered the message he was given. We need to, we need to do that too. Preach the cross. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Don't try to make the gospel more palatable by excluding the part that people don't want to hear. That's the part that has, they need the worst. That's the part, yes, it's offensive. Yes, it's, it seems foolish from our perspective. But that's the part that actually does the work of taking away sin. That's the part they desperately need. What would the Passover be without the Passover lamb? See, it just be a skimpy meal of vegetables and unleavened bread. The lamb had to die. 
how did the Passover, which is a celebratory meal, the Passover lamb, the whole story of the Passover had to be the story of the death of that lamb. If we're not preaching the cross, we're not preaching the gospel. Now, you can either believe it or not. When a person believes the gospel, they're saved. And if they don't believe it, they're lost. It's that simple. And as his ambassadors, we can either echo that message and offer that salvation to others, or we can soften and water down the message and cut down our listeners because we eventually, because we inoculate them against the real gospel. They think, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. No, they didn't. I was in churches off and on all my growing up years, but I can honestly tell you the first time I understood the gospel, I was 17, almost 18, and I was 18 when I believed it for the first time and placed my trust in what Jesus did at the cross. And at that time, I would have sworn I never heard this before. No, I know I did. I know the churches I was in. I know they preached the cross. But until that day, when somebody flat out said, God's not asking you to do anything. Jesus did all the work at the cross when he died for your sins. God is only asking you to place your trust in his finished work at the cross. That was the first time I understood that message, is when somebody put it that way. And six months later, when I finally believed. If we declare a comfortable message, only preaching the goodness and grace of a loving God, which we all want to hear, that we are ignoring the holiness and judgment of a righteous God, we're circumventing the cross, and the result is eternal loss. We've made people comfortable in their sin, in their lost state. We've convinced them that there's no need for a Savior. John 3.16, which we always quote, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The, that word so, when it says God so loved the world, it doesn't mean so much. Like God so loved the world. No, it's not that kind of so. It's in this manner, by this means. In fact, in Spanish, the way it's, tra- it's written, it says, porque de tal manera, amo Dios al mundo. By this, in this manner, God loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son to die for us, see. That's the, the, that's how he loved us, is by sending his son to die for us. Yeah, we want to preach the love and grace of God, but we've got to preach the cross as a means of receiving that love and grace. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul said regarding this express issue, he said, I do not frustrate the grace of God for righteousness, that is, having a right standing before God. If righteousness comes by the law, that's what the issue was there in the book of Galatians, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for nothing. If it's possible for you to do good things and make God like you, then Jesus died for nothing. He should have just said, well, you guys better shape up, you know. Do some good stuff so God can like you. No, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is I cannot do anything to make God like me. So if I preach a message that circumvents the cross, I'm declaring that Jesus died for nothing, that his death was pointless. And if a church approaches God in that way, it's a false church. We're not going to be that. As long as this church exists, we're going to preach the cross. We're going to preach God's word. People that circumvent the cross are inviting people to hell. That sounds harsh. It sounds judgmental. I don't intend it to sound that way. It's just a fact. We don't want to be accused of doing that. We're going to go ahead and preach the cross. We're going to encourage our listeners to place their trust in the blood of Jesus as full payment for their sins. 
Now, if you desire to be the ambassador that God has called you to be, then you need to focus on learning that message and practicing bringing it to other people because that is the job that God's given you to do. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in humility, knowing that we're consistently failing you, that we don't bring that message, either by our lives or by our words. We frequently seem to preach the message that we're just good people, and that's simply not the truth. We're lost sinners apart from the cross. If it wasn't for your blood at Calvary, I'd still be headed for hell. And we ask that you change our minds, change our heart, change our thinkings, and teach us the message of the gospel in simple enough forms that we could share it with anybody, from a little child to a well-educated adult, that we would go ahead and honestly preach the message of salvation, the, pre the preaching of the cross, as you told us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing